Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 157th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we are bringing you the legend of the djinn. And we're going to be joined by our listener, Miranda. She had joined us on a ghost walk in Denver. So it's really neat to get to talk to her again. Thanks so much for joining us, Miranda. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you? Good. We're doing fabulous. It's so nice to talk to you again. It's really nice to talk to you guys again, too. I've been so excited for this all week. Well, Miranda, you had heard us mention, I believe it was on the podcast that we did when we were talking about going to the Haunted America conference, we'd heard a speaker there, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, talking about the gin. And so you had emailed us and said, I heard you guys mention the gin, and this is an area that I really enjoy looking into and researching. And so when I decided that we would go ahead and do a show that was about the legend of the gin, I said, you know what, I am going to have to contact Miranda because she sent me an email with a ton of information and she knows the stuff about this. So we're so glad to have you joining us to help explain to the listeners and other people out there a little bit about these elusive creatures called the gin. Before we get into that, we'd love to have you check out our website, historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We want to thank Gwen for her nice email. Thanks for sending that to us. And over at Instagram, we want to thank Melody and DJ Jenny for your comments that you shot over to us. We greatly appreciate those. We had a great virtual meetup this afternoon before we recorded this episode, Denise, we talked to everybody for about an hour and a half and taught them some hula, talked about Halloween traditions and candy, and it was a great time. So we want to thank everybody who showed up to hang out with us. Absolutely. And because of that meetup, I also found some really great costumes and outfits for Tiana. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Nathaniel. Hi, Nathaniel. Sonia. Hey, Sonia. Erica. Hi, Erica. Jamie. Hey, Jamie. Tabitha. Hey, Tabitha. Mary. Hi, Mary. Christina. Hey, Christina. Chowdery. Hey, Chowdery. Solomon. Hi, Solomon. Lisa. Hey, Lisa. And Shanty. Hey, Shanty. Denise, are you ready to find out more about the gin? I most certainly am. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. 
For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. In our not-too-distant past, there were rumors of mermaids in the Azores region of Portugal, where the city of Ponta Delgada is situated. The year was 1930, and people were flocking to a seaside resort run by Papa Bernardes. For many years, he had been the proprietor of Hotel Bernardus that he ran with his wife and a couple of other workers. The hotel had just been expanded to accommodate all the guests and renamed Hotel Das Belhas Soranas Plaza, which translated means the beautiful mermaids plaza hotel. Two mermaids seemed to be living in the waters near the resort. They liked to sun themselves on the mermaid rocks in the distance. They mostly appeared at night, and Papa Bernardus had ordered two powerful searchlights to attach to the hotel to help guests spot the creatures. And they did spot them. Money was rolling in, and Papa Bernardus was a huge success, thanks to the mermaids. That was until the new police commissioner in Ponta Delgada decided to investigate the reports of mermaids. He and a couple of lieutenants jumped into a motorboat and headed out to the mermaid rocks. When the mermaids heard the boat, they jumped into the water. The motorboat was faster and caught both the mermaids, revealing that the two creatures were simply Papa Bernardus' daughter and his maid, wearing tan-colored bathing suits and handmade tails that Papa's wife had sewn. The hoax was revealed. You see, Papa was walking home one evening after having too much wine, and he thought he saw a mermaid dive into the water. He kept staring out at the water, and his daughter came walking up to him, wondering what he was looking at. She was soaking wet because she had been swimming. That is when Papa came up with his idea. The fact that it fooled so many people for such a long while certainly is odd. Are you afraid of the dark? That's just silly. What you should be afraid of is the thing that watches you sleep. This Day in History On this day, October 23rd in 1941, the Walt Disney Studios animated feature film Dumbo premieres. The Disney company had suffered losses with their film Fantasia and it went back to basics to make the more simplistic film Dumbo. It was based on a children's book about an elephant with ears so large he can use them to fly. Dumbo is anything but simplistic as it pulls at the heartstrings. Dumbo's real name is Jumbo Jr. and he is delivered to his mother at the circus. When everyone sees his big ears, they tease him and call him Dumbo. That teasing leads to his mother rampaging and she is locked up. Dumbo's only friend in the world is a little mouse, Timothy, and eventually Timothy figures out Dumbo can fly. And with practice, they use this new trick in the circus. Dumbo becomes a big hit and his mother is freed and the two are given their own private circus car. 
There's also a drunk Dumbo and Timothy, pink elephants on parade, and a magic feather thrown into the mix. The movie was the most financially successful Disney film in the 1940s and grossed $1.6 million during its original release. Joe from Curioso Podcast. It's the week of Halloween, so get in the spirit. With history goes bump. Many people's only experience with the creatures called jinn are through stories about genies. We've been led to believe that these creatures live in lamps and can only be released by rubbing the outside of the lamp. Once released, the genie promises to fulfill three wishes of the person who has freed it. The actual legends about jinn are something quite different. The jinn can be very frightening entities and have abilities that make them dangerous. They have gained in popularity and moved out from Islamic lore into the pop culture. Join us and our listener Miranda as we explore the legends of the jinn. For most of us, we grew up hearing about genies, which is another name for the jinn. And so our idea was there's this creature that's inside of a lamp or a bottle. You rub it, they pop out, they give you three wishes, then they go away. And the jinn are nothing like that. Not at all. Most people, like you said, are familiar with the word genie. I had learned that the word genie first appeared in an 18th century translation of the 1001 Arabian Nights. Sure. But no, jinn are not really like what we know as genies at all. I have heard that jinn are willing to perform favors, but it's nothing like where you rub a lamp and a spirit pops out and is willing to grant you three wishes. Nothing like that at all. Do you know what the origin of the jinn is? Were they just always here or did they come from something else? My main point of reference for the jinn comes from the Quran, mm-hmm. which is the religious text of Islam. But there is evidence that jinn have been recognized and sometimes even worshipped before Islam was ever introduced to the region. There are inscriptions in the ancient city of Palmyra. And Palmyra is about 230 kilometers northeast of Damascus, which is in Syria. Um, These inscriptions date back to the 4th century BC and include Aramaic words similar to jinn. The words that they include include uh, jen, which means hidden, and jinnaya, which was considered to be a certain classification of deities at the time. The concept of jinn has been around at least since the 4th century BC, but the Quran really talks the most about them, and the Quran was written in the 7th century AD. Wow, so that's fascinating to hear that the jinn were long before Islam came onto the scene. Some tribes seemed to claim a spirit or a jinn as like their patron spirit for their tribe, but that wasn't common of everybody. It was just here and there. Okay, so now do some people consider the jinn good? Do some consider them bad or they're just kind of in between? 
They're very much in between. So the Quran states that God created three main intelligent beings. He first created the angels, which are made of light. Second, he created the jinn, and the Quran states that the jinn are made of a smokeless flame. Some people interpret that these days to mean plasma, which Hmm. I think is interesting. Very interesting. And, And third... God created humans, and we are made of clay, or earth. It's said that God created both jinn and humans to love and worship Him, and that we were both given free will. So to answer your question, jinn can be whatever they want to be. They have their own agendas. They have the freedom to do what they want. I do believe some are malicious, but I've, over the past few weeks, I've heard stories um, from people that they are also very protective and loving. So I think it just depends on the jinn that you are interacting with. Well, that makes sense if they have free will. And so it would seem that they were just kind of made kind of like humans, that we we could go bad or we could go good. And unfortunately, some of them have. I've heard that there, what's interesting about this is when you think about angels and demons and these creatures that are not necessarily bodies like what we have, Mm -hmm. we suffer a punishment in the end of time, according to a lot of the different religious beliefs out here. And I think I had heard somewhere that the jinn are subject to that same kind of judgment. Is that true? Yes, it is believed that they will be subject to judgment day, just like us. The best definition I personally believe a jinn to be, um, I found this really cool dissertation paper written by a lady named Amira El-Zen. It's called The Evolution of the Concept of Jinn from Pre-Islam to Islam. And she defined jinn as spirit beings equal to humans in faith, intelligence, and responsibility. Like I said before, we will all be held responsible for our actions. Wow. So it does give them this kind of responsibility, which makes me think that because we have a soul that is supposed to continue to go on, it would seem that they have something that's kind of similar then if we're compar- if they're comparable to us. Yes, I agree with that. I personally can't tell if they are made strictly of whatever matter a soul would be made of, or if they have something internal within them that is more like a soul as we know it. That's a question I'm still trying to answer for myself. Are there different, because like when you look at angels and demons, it seems like they have different rankings or different kinds of names. Are there different orders of jinn or are they all kind of the same on equal footing? Some people believe that there are different types of jinn and that they kind of fall in a certain ranking. I don't think everybody believes it. And through my research, I found multiple classifications that didn't always match up. But between three and seven classifications, here are the four that I found to be the most commonly believed. Um, The first is called Marid, and the name means rebellious. A Marid is believed to be the strongest, wisest, and most powerful kind of jinn that you can encounter. The second type of jinn is known as the Afrit. They are known for their strength and cunning. It seems that Afrit jinn are typically up to no good. They're considered to be wicked. The third type of jinn that I came across is referred to as Shaitan, which is very similar to the Hebrew word for Satan. Mm-hmm. This name is, is generally used as a classification for a group of jinn who try to lead others astray. And by others, I mean both humans and jinn. This name is not used to describe a singular evil entity 
as we do in Western cultures. Again, that name is just used as a broad term for the group. And then the fourth type that I came across is Zul, and that name means to seize. And uh, these jinn are believed to consume human flesh and to take the form of who or what they have eaten. There's a lot of wives' tales that these types of jinn mainly live in graveyards. Oh, wow. That's fascinating and kind of disturbing at the same time. What's really interesting is we've grown up hearing the term ghoul, and it's used pretty liberally, especially when it comes to the Halloween time. We've just always thought of it as a spooky type of creature, maybe another word for a ghost. But it was Mm -hmm. only recently that I started hearing that it really is something that is Arabic in nature, and I had never known that. And so it's very interesting to hear you saying that this is actually one of the orders they consider to be a type of jinn. It is very interesting. And I think when I had first emailed you my letter a few months ago, I had, I had mentioned that I was always taught that jinns seek human bodies to learn how to imitate them, to learn to mimic them. And so when I read this about fool, it really kind of nailed down those beliefs for me that, that this is a common belief that jinn really do do this. They're very much alive. It's even thought that they live lives similar to us in the sense that they love, they marry. Some people believe that they have offspring and that they eventually pass away, although it's believed that their lifespans are enormous compared to ours, sometimes spanning centuries. They're always around us. They're just behind the veil, and it seems as though they can cross that barrier whenever they want to, although I don't believe that all of us humans are capable of experiencing them. I don't think I'd want to. (laughs) No, I. my personal experiences have taught me that some jinn are very aggressive in trying to prove their existence to us, and that makes me very, very wary of them for that reason. It's fascinating to hear that these are creatures that can be killed. And one of the ways that I'd heard that you could kill them is because I don't know if all of them do this, and maybe you know from your research, but they can shape shift so that they can either become an animal or appear to look like a human, and then if they're in that form, that's when they're vulnerable. They are classic shapeshifters. I think it's what they love to do best. As far as being able to kill them, I think it's possible when I was reading about jinn possessed possessions, excuse me, um, it did say that sometimes a jinn will possess a human being in order to take revenge on that human being for possibly hurting or killing of that jinn's family. I think it is possible to hurt them and kill them. As far as how to do that, I, I don't know. I didn't come across anything like that in my research. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they have the silver bullet that gets the werewolf or the stake in the heart for the vampire. So it does, it does make you wonder. It doesn't have anything specific about, yeah, cut off their head and then you've got them. I've heard that when they shapeshift, sometimes they can hold on to pieces of that shapeshift, like the teeth, tails, horns. I've heard that too. Um, my personal experiences have shown me that Shapeshifting can sometimes depend on the ability of that individual jinn. So some jinn who might be older, who might be more experienced, might be able to shapeshift very well and might be able to fully inhabit the form that they're trying to show you, whereas some of the younger, less experienced jinn might be kind of clumsy about it. They might come out looking a little deformed, and they might sometimes hold on to pieces of a past shape that they took. See, Denise, I knew those hairless dogs were gin. <laughs> <laughs> those scary looking little like Mexican hairless yeah. and stuff. 
Now, now with the gin, is there any power that humans have over to say, get away from me or, you know, or do they just kind of exercise their own will? Well, again, it depends on the individual gin. Just like if you were walking through a crowd of strangers and someone came up to you and tried to threaten you, you could easily say, go away, you're not welcome here to a human being. And it would be up to that human being if they wanted to listen to you or not. And it's the same way dealing with jinn. If you're a strong enough person and you make your will known and you make them know that they are not welcome here, then yes, I believe they will go away. However, if the jinn is malicious or maybe more powerful than you, it might stick around to mess with you a little bit. Had you heard that they can enchant objects and control the weather? I've never heard that they can control the weather. I have heard that sometimes they're in the wind. I do believe that the weather affects them. I have heard that they can inhabit objects, though. I I don't know about controlling them, but definitely like paintings of people. Again, jinn are always seeking form, especially human form. And so if they can inhabit a picture, maybe a portrait or something, I think that makes them feel good and at home. So they can... They can inhabit paintings, but again, for, for individual objects, I'm, I'm not sure about that. So you've mentioned that you not only have a little bit of knowledge about the jinn, but it seems like you've had some experiences with them. When did this yes. first start for you? So this story started with some very good friends of mine a few years ago. My friend and his sisters had grown up in a house. They had all had experiences individually, hearing and seeing things, but I think they all thought they were a little crazy, so they never shared these experiences with each other growing up. And then a few years ago, it was on New Year's Eve, and it had snowed really heavily that day. So we didn't go out. We were all just sitting around telling ghost stories, and my friend's little sister mentioned that she had been having a dream, a reoccurring dream of a woman in a white dress kind of stalking up and down the hall outside her bedroom. And I remember when she got up to go to the bathroom, her two older siblings were very concerned. And they confessed to each other that night that they had not only had the same dream, but they had seen that woman themselves and had experiences with her. And over the course of that night, these three siblings came to realize that they were all having the same experiences started sharing these things with each other and finding similarities. In the process, I was there to hear their stories. And then his oldest sister's girlfriend was also there to hear their stories. And at the end of the night, his oldest sister's girlfriend confessed to us that, you know, she didn't grow up in that house, but that the time she had been over there, she had also seen these same spirits and she was able to fill them in on more information about them. This girl ended up telling us that, you know, she had been raised as a Muslim and that both she and her father had been able to see spirits their whole lives. And so she ended up introducing all of us to the idea of jinn and that what we were seeing might be jinn. Now, I I was friends with this family for years. And so over the course of those years, we were all together, all sharing these experiences and witnessing them for each other. That New Year's Eve night was the first night I was introduced to this concept. And the night that immediately followed, I started having experiences of my own. Lucky you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a giant chicken. I am I am not elegant in the face of danger. So when it comes to spooky things like this, I was a mess. <laughs> 
I can imagine I, because they sound terrifying. And the fact that multiple people are having this experience is what really makes it legitimate to me. Anytime I've had an experience that somebody else has had at the same time, I start to be more on the believing end of things because it's like, well, we can't all have imagined the exact same thing. I agree. It, it was definitely shocking to me to be a witness to this family realizing that the things they thought were made up in their heads were becoming real and that they'd all shared these experiences their entire lives. You know, it was a revelation to all of them. Was this all in that one location or did it happen in other locations to them? For the family, it was mainly in the house that they grew up in. Okay. For, uh, for his oldest sister's girlfriend, she had had experiences her whole life in different parts of the world. You know, this was an ongoing all-around thing for her. So this almost seems like something that had attached itself to the family in general. I think so. There were multiple spirits living in that home. I don't think that all of those spirits were attached to the family themselves. I think that some of them were attached to the environment and the neighborhood. But there were a few spirits that each of these siblings could remember seeing their whole lives in different places throughout Colorado, as if that spirit had followed them there. Um, just kind of in your your opinion, because like this haunting might have been a probably possibly a gin. That's when you got introduced to that concept. But a lot of people also look at ghosts as like a lady in white, and sometimes mm-hmm. that because the gin are were kind of created at the beginning, where and can take on different forms. Where a lot of our our ghosts, they talk about it being a person who was here that it's their spirit left behind. Do you do you have any ways of people being able to di- differentiate which is which, or do you just think they're one and the same? I don't think they're one and the same. I think that the Western concept of ghost can be defined as a human being who has passed away and now their soul is left to wander this earth for, for whatever reason, you know, unfinished business, or maybe they were the victim of a horrible death. But I don't think that concept matches what I believe jinn to be. I don't believe jinn were ever human. I don't believe that they have passed away. I believe that they are very similar to human beings. They just have a different chemical makeup. You could say they're almost a different species uh, living right alongside us. I don't think that term matches the Western concept of what a ghost is. I think we see a lot of shadow figures and a lot of women in white because that's a very basic form to take, and that maybe jinn who choose to take that form are maybe on an intermediate level of learning how to shapeshift. Does that make sense? It does, and I was just starting to think the same thing myself when you were mentioning that it seemed like it was a lower level, and it seems the jinn can be on different levels as well. And I also sometimes wonder if they like to impersonate human beings, because we don't understand what the afterlife is and how ghosts are and where the soul is. And is it a different dimension? Is it a you know different frequency? We don't know quite what's going on there. It makes mm-hmm. you wonder if the human soul somehow enters the same dimension or frequency that the jinn are typically on. Is there a way that if we talk about them being able to possess us when we're alive in a physical form, is there a way that they can somehow master that soul or take over that soul? And then when they're coming back and looking like this woman in white, that maybe is this girl that was killed, like Resurrection Mary will say, have they taken over her soul and are looking like they're her, but it's actually the jinn who's doing this? That's a very scary idea. I've always been taught that my soul is my own, that nothing can influence it. 
um, and nothing can take it over, whereas your body is a vessel to be filled. And so it would make sense to me that a spirit could inhabit your body, but not your soul. I agree. I'm hoping that I'm just theorizing something that is completely <laughs> not possible because that's been my understanding too, is that even when it comes to demons, what I've heard is they're almost like they've been thrown out in the desert and so they're thirsty and the human body is like water to them. And that's why they want so much to be in that human body because they want to have that their thirst quenched and that's the way they get their thirst quenched. And so I've always just thought, well, it's just the body that can be touched, not the soul. And it is always yours. So I hope that is true because that's, that's what I've always typically <laughs> believed as well. I don't want to fall asleep tonight thinking that something might possess my soul. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm like, Diane just made everybody afraid to sleep for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Happy <laughs> Halloween, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you actually brought up another interesting sub-subject of jinn. A lot of people question if jinn are the same thing as demons. There's a lot of questions around that. I've personally been told that jinn fear demons just like we do and that they will run from them and avoid them if they're ever encountered. The Quran actually tells the story of a jinn named Iblis. As the Quran said, the jinn were created before humans, and so once humans were created, God asked the jinn to bow down before us, consider humans to be superior. Um, this particular jinn, Iblis, said, no, I don't believe that humans are superior to us. They're, you know, they're just made of dirt. Um, and so... For his refusal, he was cast out of paradise. He apparently made a deal with God that he would not be fully sentenced until the final judgment day. And the Quran says that since then, Iblis and his followers have vowed to corrupt human beings in order to prove their original opinion that we are no more superior to them. And if you hear that story, it's very similar to the story of Lucifer, the morning star, mm -hmm. how he was cast out of heaven for his refusal. But like I, like I said earlier, if you go by the concept that angels are made of light and that jinn are made of flame, that would mean that these are two entirely different species. I guess it depends on what you believe Lucifer to be. I was always told that the devil and demons were fallen angels. Mm -hmm. So again, if they were angels, they would be made of light. Then with what you're saying, jinn could not be demons because they're made from something else. Because demons came down, I mean, they fell from angels, which were a whole different concept than jinn, according to your understanding of the origin of jinn. Exactly. They're, they're two entirely different species. There's also the argument that because only jinn and humans were given free will and angels were not, it would be impossible for an angel to defy God. It wouldn't have the ability to make its own decision. So there's that theory, too, that maybe jinn are demons because they had that choice. But again, I was raised I was raised Roman Catholic. I come from a Christian background. I was always taught that demons are fallen angels. So two arguments that you can choose to research further. Most people agree, though, that, uh, that jinn are kind of in the middle. They're not angels and they're not demons. They're just like us. They're, they're intermediary beings. I was, I was looking into jinn in pop culture just to try to give people a point of you know, if they've never heard this term before. Sure. We already discussed that most people have heard the word genie. A lot of people will know like the blue genie from Disney's Aladdin. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that they'll also think about I Dream of Genie too. Those are two very common genie references. One interesting point of reference that I had not remembered from my own childhood was C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Have you guys ever read that book? Yes. 
C.S. Lewis actually mentions jinn in that book. Um, when referring to the White Witch, when the children are taken by Mr. Beaver back to his den, uh-huh. and he's telling, telling them the story of what has happened in Narnia over the years, he refers to the witch and says that the witch would like us to think that she is human, but that she is actually part giant and part jinn, which is really cool. I, I never caught that when I was little. I never caught that, and I've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe probably like five or six times. Wow. Yeah, I've read it multiple times, and I've, that just never occurred to me that he specifically claims that the White Witch is part jinn. He specifically says that she is a daughter of Lilith, who some people believe was Adam's first wife before Eve, which would mean that Lilith was a jinn herself. But I couldn't... I didn't want to dive too deep into that, and I couldn't really find anything on the surface that corroborated that. I'm wondering if maybe C.S. Lewis just took a little bit of artistic license on that. He probably did, but now I'm going to dig into that whole thought that uh, the White Witch was a giant mixed with a gin. (laughs) And I, I did read a passage somewhere that when Lilith left Adam, she became a spirit of the air, which could be a description of a jinn. I don't know. I just didn't really have time to dig into that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So the Quran talks about uh, King Solomon, as does the Bible. Um, Most people know King Solomon for his wisdom. He was also known for building the first temple of Jerusalem. Uh, The Quran specifically says, though, that he was given power over all creatures of the earth, including the spirits. The Quran is broken up into chapters called surah. So the 34th surah says, There were jinn that worked in front of him by leave of his Lord. And if any of them turned aside our command, we made him taste the penalty of the blazing fire. So it's thought that King Solomon enslaved uh, a tribe of jinn and that they worked for him. They were part of his army. They were part of his court. They would do favors for him. I know the Bible mentions the visitation to King Solomon of the Queen of Sheba. Mm -hmm. The Bible doesn't have... A whole lot to say about that story. It just mentions that this happened. The Quran also tells a version of this story. It has it's a little more detailed. The, the Quran specifically says that the Queen of Sheba was on her way to visit King Solomon in Jerusalem, and that upon hearing this, King Solomon requested that one of his jinn travel all the way to the kingdom of Sheba and retrieve the queen's throne and bring it back to him in Jerusalem. And one of the jinn stood up and volunteered and in a matter of seconds had brought the throne back to him. Now, Sheba is considered to be the old kingdom of Seba, which once existed on the modern day coast of the Red Sea near Ethiopia and Yemen. So it spanned the Red Sea. That would be about over a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. And this jinn is said to have traveled that far in a matter of seconds and brought an entire throne back with him which is pretty impressive. That is impressive. Uh, Interesting. The Quran also tells the story that when King Solomon died, he died standing up. He was leaning on his staff. And so because of this, his body remained upright. Now, the tribe of jinn that belonged to him, they were his slaves. They had to work for him until he died. But because his body was still standing, none of the jinn noticed that King Solomon was dead. And so they just continued to work. And the Quran says that a little later... God sent a worm to start eating away at the bottom of the stack so that the body would fall over. Now, it kind of seems like just a weird story in the Quran, but the moral of the story is to show that jinn cannot tell the future. Also, if you ever run into one, it might claim that it can. The story is meant to show that if jinn could tell the future, they would have known that King Solomon was going to die. They would not have continued to work in slavery for him. Very interesting. That's kind of a little relief to know that maybe they can't see the future. 
Yes, and you have to be careful. If you ever run into one, they might claim that they know things. And they they might know things a little bit, but it would be very similar to running into just a stranger on the street who told you they knew what was going to happen to your life. You know, you would have to use your own judgment on whether or not to trust them. The Quran actually tells uh, another story of how jinn used to sit at the gates of heaven and they would eavesdrop on God's plans for the future. Once they were discovered, God chased them away. Specifically says he chased them away with brightly burning flames. And some people translate to me that to mean uh, comets and meteors. So if you ever see a falling star, it's sometimes believed that that falling star is chasing a jinn away from the gates of heaven. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. But I found a, a very interesting article online written by a man named Hank Wesselman. He is a paleoanthropologist, and he is also very spiritual. He practices what he calls shamanic journey, which to me just sounds like a form of meditation, spiritual growth. He wrote a very interesting article and posted it online. It's called An Encounter with a Jinn in Egypt. He came across this jinn in a temple in Egypt and was able to have an interview with it. So if you guys want to check it out, it's on sharedwisdom.com slash article slash encounter dash jinn dash genie dash Egypt. And I can email you guys that link too if you want. It's a really very interesting interview. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, I'll put it in the show notes. Perfect. And this man, Hank Wesselman, described that, you know, when he was speaking with this jinn, he said, let me say in advance that this dialogue did not occur in English or Arabic, but rather in the nonverbal communication modality that I conceive of as, quote, think feeling. And the interesting thing that stuck out to me about this is my friends, when they would have experiences with jinn, they would always tell me, I can't see them with my eyes. I know they're in the room. It's almost as though a picture has been placed in my mind like feeling. And I thought that was very interesting that my friends had all had that experience and that this this man who I know nothing about also reports the same feeling when dealing with Jin, that this is all kind of taking place in a state of your mind. So as he as this man, Hank Wesselman, goes on to interview the Jin, first of all he starts by showing the Jin respect. He asks the Jin if there's anything it would like. And it says, in response, the Jin's field brightened considerably as though a pulse of energy surged through its life and hesitantly, almost shyly, an answer came. It wanted honey. Now, this is a funny story. I was able to interview a friend of mine. His name is Todd. He lives in Missouri. I had met him this summer and he and I had uh, been discussing gin and it came out that he also believed in gin and that he had had many personal experiences with them himself. And he told me a story that a few years ago, he was having a dream in the middle of the night. It was a dream that felt very real. Many people believe that jinn can actually invade your dreams. They can be part of it, and then they can mold your dreams the way they want them to be. So it's not uncommon to hear of someone having an experience with the jinn in a dream state. But my friend Todd was telling me that in his dream, the spirit requested that he make an apple pie. And so in his head, uh, he said, I think they did this with me to see if I would listen. They wanted me to think about baking an apple pie. And so in his dream, he imagined each step of baking the apple pie. You know, he described everything to me, rolling out the crust, chopping the apples. And he said, as I was picturing this in my mind, I was sprinkling the cinnamon and I heard, mm-hmm. he said, and I woke up and I realized that that sound had come from my closet. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then yeah. he fled. I would have fled. I think I would have too. Um, but Todd's stories 
all of his stories have seemed very, that the spirits in his life were very protective and positive towards him. But that story really stuck out for me that his gin requested that he make it an apple pie. And then that this doctor, Hank Wesselman, experienced a gin in Egypt who asked that he bring it honey. It seems to me as though gin are interested in eating food through their dreamlike state. I wonder if maybe they can't taste food unless we bring it to them through our imagination. Hmm, interesting. And the, they seem to like sweet stuff. Yeah, they do seem to like sweet stuff. Oh no, I Diane's really a gin. They're requesting dessert. <laughs> yeah, that'll be me in the afterlife. <laughs> Everybody will think <laughs> Diane's a gin. It'll be like, no, it's just Diane. Miranda, bring me <laughs> apple pie. <laughs> Todd has also told me stories that most of his experiences have been with light orbs, which is something I hadn't heard of before with other people's stories of gin. But Todd told me that there have been many times that he's just seen bright lights in the house, that when people take pictures of him, he's usually surrounded by orbs. He told me a really cool story that during a Christmas party a few years ago, he had this feeling that he just needed to go outside to go see something. And he kept ignoring the feeling, but he said after a while, it's almost like if you, um, if you have to go to the bathroom and you just keep putting it off, after a while, you just can't hold it anymore and you have to go. And so he said he, he just had this sense of urgency. So he walked out, opened his front door, and he said when he opened it, it was like a shower of light. He said there were bright crystal blue light orbs about the size of volleyballs raining down in front of his house. And he said for a minute, I thought they might be giant shooting stars. But when I looked up at the sky, they were only falling from the roof line. And once they hit the ground, they would disappear. He said it only lasted for a few seconds. It was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. Like I said, I hadn't heard people describing interactions with jinn as interactions with light orbs. After reading this article by Hank Wesselman, after he interviewed the jinn he encountered in Egypt, that jinn had something to say on orbs that I thought was really interesting. Dr. Hank Wesselman asked the jinn if it was a greater jinn or a lesser jinn, and this jinn uh, responded no to both. So the doctor wasn't really sure how to take that. So he finally kind of reworded his question and said, who are the lesser jinn? And the spirit answered, they are units of ensouled energy that are growing in their awareness. And the doctor asked, are they orbs? He says, the jinn didn't seem to understand the word orb. So I elaborated about spheres of light picked up by the flash of digital cameras. I also disclosed how photographs taken in Egypt at night often revealed masses of orbs while photos taken away from the sites reveal few or none. The jinn's response was this. These orbs are units of ensouled light in the process of growing and becoming more. They approach you because they are curious about you. They are drawn toward human thought and emotion. The doctor asked, are they jinn? And the spirit answered, they are jinn in becoming. I just thought that was fascinating. That is, and now it makes us sit there and go, well, we can't just discount all these orbs as well. It's just weird. It's water, it's vapor, it's dust. That sometimes there might really be something going on there. And the fact that you're hearing this in regards to gin is really fascinating. Plus the light show that you were talking about, I've never heard anything like that in my life. What amazing, what an amazing story that is. But then when you were saying that sometimes a shooting star is thought to be a comet chasing down a gin, it just makes you go, wow, what was that light show supposed to be showing? 
Well, <laughs> and another thing with the orbs is we've seen a couple examples of orbs that had like a face in them. Mm-hmm. So if these are gins becoming. becoming, then and they're starting to do that shape shifting, they would be starting to take different human forms and put it in there. So that makes a lot of sense of where those orbs might get that that face and stuff. I just got a chill up my spine. <laughs> I know. I think that's why I love the theory of gin so much is because it really seems to cover a lot of paranormal ghostly subjects that I didn't have explanations for growing up. Exactly. It does. It does answer a lot of that stuff. And I think what the problem is, is Rosemary Ellen Guiley jumped all the way to the one side rather than saying, well, you know what? This plugs into this place. This plugs into that place. She just plugged it into everything. Well, and you should definitely check out this article. It's a very long interview that this doctor had with this gin. And this gin has a lot to say on what Rosemary herself said. Because I, I think you guys mentioned that she even attributed like aliens yes. to gin. Yep. This article touches on that. It's a, it's actually kind of a frightening article when you read the whole thing. Okay. Um, it challenges a lot of belief systems. Be prepared for that and take it with a grain of salt. Like I said before, if you encounter a spirit, it would be just like encountering a stranger on the street. You have to decide for yourself what to believe and what not to believe. As one can see, Barbara Eden's genie in the bottle is something quite different than the gin of lore. Do these creatures actually exist, or are these just legends passed down through religious tradition? Could gin really be affecting the world around us today? That is for you to decide. Well, I know I don't want to meet any gin, that's for sure. Yeah, I definitely do not. So no offense to gin, but I would rather let other people meet your acquaintance. On our next episode, we are going to be talking about something that was suggested to us by Molly Farquhar, and that is witches in America. We've already talked about the Salem witch trials, but there are other witches in America that we haven't discussed yet. And one of those is a witch that many, many, many of you have requested over the last two years, and we've put it on the back burner, but we're bringing it out for this one, and that is the Bell Witch. And we are going to be joined on that episode by a gentleman that I consider to be the expert on the Bell Witch, and that is Pat Fitzhugh. So we're looking forward to bringing that to you. Before we go, we do have a review from iTunes by JF95926. Ghostly Good Fun, five stars. Love ghosts, love history. Then you found your new favorite podcast. Well, thank you so much, JF, for that. We want to thank you all for tuning into this episode. I have been your host, Diane. This has been Denise. And this has been Miranda. You guys take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Nicole Reef and Rachel Saichkowski. Hopefully you did that right. And we'd also like to thank Christina Ricon for your one-time donation. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com.